0: You take your Bibles and turn them with me to the book of James, chapter one. Yeah, we're still in chapter one, y'all. I thought we were going to be out of chapter one weeks ago, but uh, I guess that was naive of me. It's a lot of great content packed into this little book. So, um, how would you define freedom or liberty? Probably in the minds of many. Uh, Images of an American ideal come to mind. Freedom means the ability to choose your own path, to go your own way, to achieve your goals and your dreams and your desires. To some, freedom uh, means simply doing whatever you feel like doing without any kinds of restraints. Scripturally speaking, freedom is something more specific than that. Uh, Jesus told His opponents once that if you sin, then you're a slave to sin, And the opposite of that is the liberation from sin that Jesus brings through the truth of His Word. Freedom means being everything that God initially created humanity to be, uh, which is a full-fledged bearer of the image of God reflecting God's character and goodness and righteousness and holiness in the world. And that definition of freedom is repulsive to most people, because that doesn't sound like freedom at all. That sounds like being restrained, uh, being held back. People don't see God as a God of freedom and liberty, but as a God who is putting them in oppressive bondage. But the Scriptures turn that conventional wisdom on its head and tells us that true freedom is found in relationship with God. And everything else is a form of slavery that may feel good right now, but after all is said and done, it will not end well because sin is a brutal taskmaster. That's exactly what James has been discussing in the verses that we were looking at last week, as he gave this terrifying description of the pathway of sin in verses 14 and 15 of chapter 1. He said that each person is tempted when, uh, when he is lured and enticed by his own desire, because in the moment of temptation… We think that that the pathway is a good thing. We think that life uh, will be good, and it's going to be great and awesome and satisfying if we go in the direction of sin. That's why we do it. But you're being Lord, James says. You're being enticed, you're being baited like an animal, and you reach for that bait. And James says that that desire, when it's conceived, gives birth to sin. It turns into an outward, sinful manifestation of the sin that's already been churning in your heart. And that sin, when it is fully grown, James says, when it comes to its full fruition, brings forth death. Death in a thousand different ways. Death to relationships, death to reputation, death to marriages, death to friendships, death to churches, death even in the form of self destructive controlling addictions, sometimes even death to the body. And for those living a lifetime of consistent rejection of God and everything that He offers, eternal death and suffering in hell is at the end of that path. So, welcome to your wonderful freedom. How do you like it now? Uh, The thing that seems so wonderful and so good and so free is the thing that enslaves you, puts you into bondage, and ends in your destruction. Because there is a way that seems right to man, but in the end it leads to death. But there is another path. There's a better path. It's the path that takes you right back into the loving arms of a good and perfect God who gives good and perfect gifts. That's James Point in verse 17. The ultimate good for yourself that you're seeking in sin is not found in sin, it's found in God, who always keeps His promises, who's always doing right by His people, giving them good and perfect gifts from above. And the first proof of God's goodness James gives us in verse 18, we looked at this last week, we're still in review time here. In verse 18, it says, of His own will, simply out of the goodness of God's own heart, out of His mercy, He brought us forth, He birthed us, not physically, of course, but spiritually. He's talking about a spiritual renewal. At one time, we were completely dead in our sin. We were slaves to sin by nature and by choice. We were children of wrath. Deserving God's holy justice because of our rebellion against Him. And what salvation is, it's a renewal. It's a rebirth. It's being born again. It's God taking your dead spirit that was in hostility towards God, uh, taking your heart that loves sin and self more than God, and He breathes new life into that spirit, giving you a new heart with new desires because you've been made in a, into a new creation. So basically, salvation, what it is, is God saving you from yourself and the destructive path that you were on. Uh, But salvation for you does not mean instant, immediate perfection. It's about a change in direction. Uh, You see, you were once walking away from God. You were walking down the the path of of sin, and, and at the end of the road was destruction and judgment. And what God does is He rescues you from yourself. He takes you and He turns you around now, and now you're going in a new direction. You're going on God's path, on God's road. And, And at the end of the road is heaven, but you're not in heaven yet. That's where you go when you die. That's the end of the road, and that is when you'll be made sinless and perfect. But until such time, it's a process getting there getting to that state of perfection and sometimes it's two steps forward and it's one step back you ever feel like that in your christian walk and sometimes it can get very frustrating but all of us know all of us know the, frustra- the frustration and the failure that comes with, with trying to follow God. We all know what it's like to, to, to say in our heads, I know that the Bible says that I'm free, but sometimes I still feel like a slave. And the good news is, is that James does not leave you without help and without direction here. If you find yourself sometimes weary in the battle against sin, James offers you a, a path forward. It's, it's different than the path that we looked at last week, the path of temptation and death and destruction. This is a different way, a better way. So, let's hear God's wisdom through His servant James right now. Please stand with me out of honor and reverence for the reading of the precious and perfect Word of our God. We're in James chapter 1, and we're going to start in verse 19 and read on down through verse 25. This is James writing. He was the brother, or should I say the half-brother of the Lord Jesus Christ, used to be an unbeliever, then God got a hold of his heart. And now he writes this under the inspiration of the Spirit of God. He says, "'Know this, my beloved brothers. Let every person be quick to hear, slow to speak, slow to anger. For the anger of man does not produce the righteousness of God.' the law of liberty, and perseveres, being no hearer who forgets, but a doer who acts, he will be blessed in his doing. Let's pray. Father, this morning I pray that You would do the work that I can't do, which is miraculously speak through Your holy Word in such a way that it will touch hearts, in such a way that it will bless in such a way that it will impact and change lives. I am powerless, but the good news is that your Word is powerful. And so I pray that your Word would do its work starting right now. In Jesus' name, amen. You may be seated. In the year 1722, when he was just 18 years old, uh, Jonathan Edwards began writing his 70 resolutions. And in Resolution 28, he wrote this, resolved to study the Scripture so steadily, constantly, and frequently as that I may find and plainly perceive myself to grow in the knowledge of the same. Edwards was a teenager when he was writing that, and he realized at that young age that he could only grow in his faith uh, through... Uh, through being involved with the Word of God, through getting into the Word of God and getting the Word into Him, I wonder how many teenagers in this room are committing themselves to studying the Scriptures steadily, constantly, and frequently. As as Edward said, I wonder how many adults are so resolved. How much of a priority do we put on the Word of God? How much of a sense of urgency do we feel about it? How much is it a part of our lives? In our text today, James is continuing his emphasis on the importance of God's Word in the life of a believer. He introduced the topic of the Word in verse 18. He said, of his own will, he brought us forth by the Word of truth. In other words, the reason that you're sitting here as a Christian this morning, one who has been spiritually uh, uh, birthed into a new creation by God, the reason that you're in that condition is because of the Word of truth. The Word of God got to you, Uh, and if you're like me, maybe you spent years resisting the ministry of the Word, but eventually the truth of God's Word penetrated my heart and heart in the fall of 1991, I can't believe it's been so long, penetrated my heart, softened my heart, worked a miracle inside of me, and made me new. The Apostle Peter puts it this way, he says, you've been born again Not of perishable seed, but of imperishable through the living and abiding Word of God. That's 1 Peter one twenty three. But what James wants to show us now is that the Word of God is not just essential for our initial salvation. It's also necessary for our ongoing sanctification. Our ongoing growth in holiness and victory over those dangerous ensnaring temptations that we read about in verses 14 and 15. The Word is a major theme in this section. In fact, you may want to circle or underline these verses. So, again, as I just said in verse 18, it's mentioned as the Word of Truth. But then look at verse 21. It's called the implanted Word. Look at verse 22. It's mentioned as the Word. In verse 25, it's called the Law of Liberty. It's being mentioned over and over again. So so the urgency of the Word is not just for people who are uh, coming to faith in Christ for the first time. It's for people also who are persevering and remaining steadfast in the faith. Uh, it's, uh, the Word of God is necessary for enjoying freedom and liberty in Christ. And in contrast to the path of temptation and death that James talked about earlier, he, he now shows us uh, the path of to spiritual liberty. And this path includes three things and they all revolve around the Word. And the first thing is that we need to be about the business of eagerly hearing the Word. Eagerly hearing the Word. Look at verse 19. He says, Know this, my beloved brothers, let every person be quick to hear. Now many times this verse is quoted in regards to how to do interpersonal relationships. So folks will say, well, if you want to be a good friend, If you want to be a good husband, if you want to be a good wife, if you want to resolve conflict, be quick to hear. In other words, be a good listener. Listen more than you speak. Now, that's good advice. But that's not James's primary concern here as far as just interpersonal relationships in general. James's concern is more specific than that. Remember the focus of this section. It's all about our relationship to the Word of God. So, be quick to listen in this verse is really about listening to God. It's about hearing God. In other words, if you want to enjoy spiritual liberty and freedom, the very first thing you must do is be quick to hear the Word of God. Now, how do we hear from God? Some people are going to tell you, well, you listen for audible voices. Other people are going to tell you, look for signs. Look for strange things going on that some people call coincidence, uh, but really it's God trying to tell you something. Uh, Sometimes people get really mystical and spooky about how to hear from God. But but the Bible never tells us to seek after audible voices from God or spooky manifestations or anything like that. Instead, the Bible drives us right back to the Bible. Ephesians 2.20 says that the church is built on the foundation of the prophet's. Their teachings, their writings, the foundation has been laid, the canon of Scripture has been closed. There is no further need for a new revelation. Every word that you need to hear from God, to live for God, and enjoy spiritual liberty is found right in those Bibles that you're holding right now. That's what the Apostle Paul was getting at when he wrote to Timothy that all Scripture is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness, that the man of God may be complete and equipped for every good work. Now, James doesn't just say, hear God's word. He says, be quick. Be quick to hear. Be eager to hear, because what God's going to say to you is important. It means hearing with an attentive spirit, because there is a way to listen and not really hear. Do you know what I'm talking about? Wives, have you ever talked to your husband about something that was really important to you, and you were talking, and you were talking, and you were talking, and he is nodding, and he is nodding, and he is nodding nodding in all the places that he's supposed to nod, but maybe wives, halfway through the conversation, you realize something. Much to your horror, you realize that he's not paying attention. Uh, he, he's, he's thinking about work or golf or, or, or whatever else it may be, the Avengers. I don't know. It seems like he is listening, but really he's not hearing, and your voice sounds like the voice of the adults in a Charlie Brown cartoon. You know what I'm talking about? What does that voice sound like? quack, 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 I'm sorry, wives, to break that to you. That might be a revelation to you. Sometimes that happens. I'm not saying it's good. I'm just saying it's real. Husbands, husbands, don't be like that with your wives. But even more important, church, don't be that way with God. That's the point here. Be quick to listen. As one writer said, it is possible to be unfailingly regular in your Bible reading, but to achieve no more than to have moved the bookmark forward. The word is read, but it's not heard. Some of you get this. You can open up your Bible in the morning, and you can do the next little thing in your Bible reading plan, and you can check off a little box that says that you read it, and you can close that Bible, and you have no idea what you just read. And you're like, I don't know what you're talking about, Deemer. Maybe that's you, but that's never happened to me. I bet you that's happened to some of you before. You might have been reading the Word, but you weren't really hearing the Word it's just a mechanical kind of thing that you were doing. And the word becomes, wonk, 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 wok wok wonk. And so we need, to, we need God to help us cultivate a greater sense of urgency when we come to our Bibles. Moses said in Deuteronomy 32, take to heart all the words by which I am warning you today, that you may command them to your children that they may be careful to do all the words of this law, for it is no empty word for you, but your very life. Think about that. Moses is saying that God's word is not optional. It's a matter of life and death. Do you you feel that same sense of urgency about God's word? That this word is not just words on a page, but it's your very life that your spiritual life hangs in the balance based on your response and your attitude towards the Word? Can you say with Job, who said in Job 23, 12, I have treasured the words of his mouth more than my portion of food? A great example of this attitude is in Luke chapter 10. And here Jesus had entered Bethany and visited the home of Mary and Martha and Lazarus and you may notice, know the story. Uh, Martha is running around the house, and she's trying to serve everybody, and she's probably sprinting back and forth in and out of the kitchen. She's cooking, and she's cleaning, and she's got stuff going on, and she's trying to be a good host. And Martha got annoyed that she was doing all the work herself. And the Gospel of Luke tells us that, that she went up to Jesus and, and almost like a snitch. She went up to Jesus and said, Lord do you not care that my sister has left me to serve alone? Tell her then to help me. But the Lord answered her, Martha, Martha, you are anxious and troubled about many things, but one thing is necessary. Mary has chosen the good portion which will not be taken away from her. You see, Mary was quick to hear She was eager. She was attentive. There was nothing that was more important to her in that moment. Jesus was there and he was speaking the very words of God. Who cares about eating? Who cares about drinking? What's in the stove? That that can wait. This is the priority. Many of us are more like Martha than Mary, aren't we? We're all about getting stuff done, checking off boxes. Getting the, getting the next project done, being productive. And, and if we have time, we'll eventually get around to the Word. We, we know that, that we need to do that, and, and we'll, we'll get to it. But right now, I'm just really busy, can't you see? God understands. And, and really, our lives should be the opposite. Well, when I have time, I'll get around to this other stuff. But right now, i got to do this. This is my very life. I can't make it without this. We need need God's help to change our attitude about the Word. And we need to pray regularly with the psalmist who prayed in Psalm 119, 18. He said, open my eyes that I may behold wondrous things out of your law. You see, the psalmist realized that he needed help from God. He needed supernatural help to change his attitude about the Word. Because if God doesn't help us, then the Word is boring. The Word is irrelevant. The Word is Charlie Brown adults talking. Open my eyes that I may see the truth about your Word and how wonderful it is. Now, now of course, this doesn't mean that you're going to have some sort of rush of euphoria every time you read the Word. It's not what we need. We simply need to get our attitude about God's Word right, that we we view it with the same sense of urgency and priority as we view eating and drinking. I never miss a meal. meal. And some of you are like, amen, Deemer, I can see you. You never miss a meal. No matter how busy I am, somehow I find time to eat. I don't know how I do it, but I just do. Why? It's a big deal to me. It's important. I'll be late for something if it means I can not be hangry anymore. There's a sense of urgency there. We have time for the things that are most important to us. We really, really, really do we need God to help us. Because you will not grow in your walk with God and experience greater levels of spiritual liberty apart from being quick to hear the Word of God. As someone wrote, uh, as we hear the life-giving Word, the energies of our new nature are stimulated into action. So, if you're going to be quick to hear God's Word, if you're going to read it with increased attentiveness, it may mean some radical changes, And how you approach the Word of God. Uh, No longer will you just mechanically read the Bible, not even engaging your brain and and your heart as you read. You're actually going to think about the text. Uh, You're going to hang on its every word. I think, you know, if, if we had somebody uh, a very important come here this morning and stand up on this stage and speak, if the President of the United States came and he started speaking, I bet you just about everybody in here would be paying attention and hanging on to his every word because you think it's important and you think it's a big deal. How much more is it with the king of the universe? Oh, and how we need to hang on his every word. So we're going to think about what we're reading. We're going to engage with it. We're going to ask questions of those verses that we're reading. We're going to let the scriptures challenge us and push us. You're going to meditate on the word. You're going to ask yourself, what what does what I'm reading show me about God? What does it show me about Christ and the gospel? Is there something in the text that exposes a sin that I need to repent of? Or is there a command I need to obey? Or is there a principle I need to incorporate into my life? Is there anything here in this text that is correcting my wrong thinking that speaks to the current challenges of my life. What here can encourage me? How can I pray in response to the text? There's a million questions like that that you can answer. And if you need help with how to get into the Word of God and, and how to deal with the text and wrestle with the text, I, I would be more than happy to help you with that. Now, being quick to hear isn't just for when you're reading your Bible, but for also for when someone is teaching you the Bible. Uh, when they are speaking God's truth, when they are speaking God's Word into your life, When, when someone is showing you how His Word applies to your situation, whether that be me up here on Sunday mornings, or whether you're being counseled or held accountable or discipled by another Christian, to the degree that someone is speaking God's Word, speaking scripturally to you, you need to be quick to hear that, thinking deeply and carefully about that and taking it very seriously. James says, be quick to hear the Word, and then he says, be slow to speak. Now, James here is not saying, don't be talkative, although there can be some benefit in that. Instead, again, considering the focus of of James on the Word in this section, he's talking about handling God's Word. We should be very quick to hear God speak His Word. We should be more careful when we open up our mouths teaching God's Word to others. Now, this is not... Certain, but it is likely that the first century church service was different from ours in that it was interactive during the sermon. It wasn't just that only the the one person with the microphone would speak, not that they had microphones back then, but it wasn't just the one one person's up there speaking and everybody else is just passive and not not saying anything. There was interaction. Some of you probably would like us to implement that here at Harbin's. That would be interesting. But it could be that that if that was the case, uh, that In the early church, maybe some things were getting out of hand, uh, out of hand with the interaction, and people were more eager to talk than to listen, more eager to teach than be taught, which in and of itself is a red flag. James seems to touch on this issue again in chapter 3, verse 1, cautioning these Christians to have a care in regards to their eagerness to speak. He says in chapter 3, "...not many of you should become teachers, my brothers." For you know that we who teach will be judged with greater strictness. In other words, don't be in a big hurry to be a teacher. And then James goes on in that chapter to talk about the dangers of lacking self-control in your speech. Uh, John MacArthur says that James here speaks of having a holy fear that you might represent, misrepresent the truth, a reticence that holds you back until you really grasp it. The uh, great preacher John Knox, who brought the Reformation to Scotland, was gripped by the weightiness of the ministry of preaching. And his biographer uh, tells the story that when Knox was called to preach, that he burst forth in most abundant tears and withdrew himself to his chamber, his face and behavior from that day until the day he was compelled to present himself in the public place of preaching did sufficiently declare the trouble and grief of his soul." He was terrified. John Knox understood what it meant to be slow to speak. And folks, I'm no John Knox, but I get it. And I must tell you that while preaching the Word is one of the greatest privileges I have in my ministry here at Harbin's, it is also at the same time the thing that causes me the most consistent fear and anxiety. And I mean a holy, reverent fear. James is saying be slow to speak until you have grasped the word and you're rightly dividing his truth. Now, As we consider James' admonition to be slow to speak, I think it's important to realize that you can't really listen carefully to anyone if all you're doing is talking. You're doing all the talking. If you're monopolizing the conversation. Or if you, maybe you do let them get a word in edgewise, but you're still not being quick to listen because you're busy just thinking about the next thing that you want to say. And that becomes a big problem if the person who is speaking to you is teaching you God's Word. Whether that's your pastor or another brother and sister in the church trying to help you walk biblically through something, you'll never benefit from anyone else's biblical wisdom if you're not slow to speak. Many have observed that God gave us two ears but just one mouth. That should be a helpful reminder that we should listen twice as much as we talk, at least So, the first thing is that we are to eagerly hear the Word. Next thing is that we are to be humbly receiving the Word, humbly receiving the Word. At the end of verse 19, James also says we should be slow to anger. That word there for anger in the Greek speaks of bitter resentment. Um, Here we have someone who hears the Word, and they don't like what they hear. You know, sometimes God's Word touches a nerve. It cuts us. It humbles us. Has that ever happened to you? It can expose our sin and, and, and confront us in an uncomfortable way. That's some of what the author of Hebrews is getting at in, in Hebrews 4 when he says the Word of God is living and active and sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing to the division of soul and of spirit, of joints and of marrow, and discerning the thoughts and intentions of the heart. And no creature is hidden from his sight, but all are naked and exposed to the eyes of Him to whom we must give account. And in that moment, when the Word of God confronts us about something in our lives, we can either get angry and it or we can humbly receive it. Now that anger can come when we're reading the Bible or, and I think this is more common, it comes when a fellow Christian comes to us and confronts us with something in God's Word. Uh, when someone comes and says, well, hey brother, hey sister, what you did the other day, that was troubling. Uh, That seemed to go against what what the the Word of God says, that that cutting remark that you spoke, uh, that gossip that you participated in, whatever it might be. uh, And that's when suddenly the defensiveness in us rises up. Uh, We're definitely in that moment not quick to hear, and we are definitely not slow to speak as we begin to justify ourselves and explain, make excuses, and we're definitely not slow to anger. And this anger is not a righteous anger that has to do with God and His kingdom and His glory. This is a sinful, self-righteous anger where it's it's all about our kingdom and what we want. And sometimes in our sin, we're out there, we're pursuing something we want, and when someone comes along and speaks God's, God's convicting word into our lives, we push back and we get angry. Why? Because it threatens our little kingdom. And we lash out and treat the other person not as a friend, but as an enemy, it reminds me of the Apostle Paul who had some very hard words to say to, the, to a wayward Galatian church. And he said to them in Galatians 4, 16, Have I then become your enemy by telling you the truth? But the one who brings God's word into your life to correct you is not your enemy. And in, in the moment, we should not get angry about the correction Uh, especially after what we just read earlier in chapter 1 about temptation and being lured to our own death. Uh, If sin is that deadly, if sin is that dangerous, then whoever is bringing God's Word to you to help you, even if they're correcting you there, even if that stings a little bit, that person actually is doing you a favor, and they are loving you. For the commandment is a lamp, and the teaching a light. Proverbs 6.23 says, and the reproofs of discipline are the way of life. One of my favorites is in Proverbs chapter 12, verse 1. Whoever loves discipline loves knowledge, but he who hates reproof or correction is stupid. So, don't be stupid. Application point. It's <laughs> a great application point. You'll probably remember that. Don't be stupid. Humbly embrace correction. Because James says... The anger of man does not produce the righteousness of God. You will never grow in the faith and spiritual freedom that, you're, that, that you so need if you resist God's word in anger. Therefore, James says in verse 21, put away all filthiness and rampant wickedness. In other words, repent of whatever you're, you were doing that you shouldn't be doing, that you've been corrected about. And James says, receive with meekness or humility the implanted word which is able to save your souls. He uses a clothing metaphor. Uh, Put off or or put away or take off the filthy, dirty, muddy garments of sin. Only then will you be in a position to really receive God's Word. Because just like if your your belly is full of candy and junk food, uh, you're not going to be able to enjoy and benefit from that nutritious meal that's coming your way. In fact, you won't want to eat it, and it'll turn your stomach. In the same way, you're not going to be able to enjoy and benefit from the Word while you're living in sin. Get rid of the junk food, uh, put off the filthy garments, swallow your pride, and humbly receive the Word which is able to save your souls. And, And here he's not talking about initial salvation. He's talking about the ongoing effects of salvation, the ongoing process of sanctification which is happening now, but will come to completion when God's saving work comes to full fruition in heaven. You know, the Bible speaks of salvation in different aspects, like we have been saved, we are being saved, and we will be saved. James says that as you humbly receive that Word, that that Word has the power to grow you into everything a saved person is supposed to be. And notice James says that the Word is already implanted in you, James is speaking to Christians. He's speaking to saved people. He's telling Christians to re-embrace something that is already implanted in you. Uh, Receiving the Word is not just a one-time thing that happened when you were converted. Instead, we're to keep going back to that Word that saved us. And that Word helps us to move forward because the implanted Word bears fruits. So, while verse 18 taught us that you don't get saved apart from the Word, here we learn that you don't grow apart from... From the implanted word that is humbly received by God's people. But nevertheless, with that said, we, we don't remain passive, which leads to my third observation. We are to be faithfully obeying the word. Faithfully obeying the word. Verse 22 But be doers of the word and not hearers only, deceiving yourselves. This is important. This is important. You can be quick to hear the word. You can Humbly receive the Word in that moment. But that's not enough. Now you actually have to do something. You actually have to put it into practice. Folks, God will not obey for you. And you will not experience the full benefit from the Word if you don't take this final step. So, don't simply nod and give lip service to the Word of God. Live it out. Apply the Word to every category of your life to your marriage, your friendships, your church life, your job, your parenting, your entertainment choices, how you use your money. And like Nike says, just do it. Just do it. James says to just hear the word and not do It's self-deception. You're fooling yourself. How so? Because you've deceived yourself into thinking that since you, you give a big thumbs up and amen to Deemer sermon or you enthusiastically endorse a Bible verse and you post it on social media, or you nod in agreement to whatever scriptural truth someone else shares with you, just because you do those things and nothing else, you think you're, just, you're doing just fine. And James says, no, you're deceiving yourselves. James says in, in verse 23, for if anyone is a hearer of the word and not a doer, he's like a man who looks intently at his natural face in a mirror, for he looks at himself and goes away and at once forgets what he was like. Now, back in James' day, they didn't have polished mirrors like we do today. It was different. They took silver or bronze and they polished, and maybe even gold in some circumstances, and they just polished it to such a degree that you could finally get a faint reflection of yourself in the mirror. But certainly it wasn't as clear as the kind of mirrors that you're thinking about. That's why Paul says in 1 Corinthians 13, now we see in a mirror dimly. Because he, he, he could have been uh, looking at a, a piece of, of shiny silver or bronze, and it's not the same thing as, as looking in reflective glass like we have today. So, it would have been really easy for folks to, to look into that kind of mirror and, uh, and quickly forget the details of what he saw. James is telling you, don't treat God's Word that way. You hear the Word, and, and then it's like you've totally forgotten what you just heard. If you desire to obey God's Word, then you're going to work hard uh, to really take it in, to really remember it. In Deuteronomy chapter 8, Moses warns the, uh, the Israelites, he says in verse 11 of, of Deuteronomy 8, take care lest you forget the Lord your God by not keeping His commandments and His rules and His statutes. Moses ties in forgetfulness with disobedience to God, just like James does. And then A little later on uh, in Deuteronomy chapter 8, Moses goes on to say, Beware, lest you say in your heart my power and the might of my hand have gotten me this wealth. You shall remember the Lord your God, for it is he who gives you power to get wealth. And if you forget the Lord your God and go after other gods, I solemnly warn you today that you shall surely perish. Moses is warning the people of pride. Uh, Forgetting God is a serious form of pride. Being a hearer of the Word and not a doer is a form of pride. It's a way of saying, you know what? I can do life. I can make it through my day. I can do my job. I can take care of my kids. I can do all of that without God. Don't fool yourself. Don't think that you can do a little three-minute devotion in the morning or a 30-minute devotion in the morning in the Word and, and, and not have any intention of putting anything you read into practice that day, don't expect that word to be of any benefit to you. You're on your own. Because it's not enough to be a hearer only. Uh, don't come to church, listen to the word, give Deemer a few hearty amens at all the right spots, and then five minutes after the benediction, you're in the hallway grumbling and, and gossiping about other people or leaders in the church or speaking harshly to your wife or disobeying your parents, that's pride. It's pride. It's not enough to hear the Word. It's not even enough to fill your head with Bible knowledge. You know, one of the easiest ways to hide your sin is to fill your head up with Bible facts and systematic theology. And we get, we get fooled by that. Folks, getting a big theological head... You can't draw a line from that to, oh, this person's really, really godly. You just can't do it. And I'm all for Bible knowledge and systematic theology. Don't get me wrong. I lead two systematic theology reading groups, and they're fantastic. But sometimes we falsely assume that raw knowledge equals godliness. But you can have all this knowledge, and you can still forget God. And there are people who are mired in secret sin that are extremely impressive on the outside as they spout out lots of theology and good doctrine. And that knowledge can be a way to hide sin. In fact, someone here right now might be in that position. My friend, don't, don't do it. Don't go that way. If you are a hearer of the Word but not a doer, you will continue to remain in spiritual bondage in frustration, in discouragement, and stunted in your spiritual growth. But James gives hope. He gives us a path to freedom. Verse 25, says, But the one who looks into the perfect law, the law of liberty, and perseveres, being no hearer who forgets, but a doer who acts, he will be, he will be blessed in his doing. So this person, this person is contrasted with the one who merely hears. And he's looking into the perfect law. Uh, That word for look in the Greek literally means to stoop over, to bend down, to examine something with care and precision. And the object of this man's examination is not just the law, but the perfect law, the law of liberty, the law of freedom. Now, Now, to some, that seems to be an oxymoron, to put words like law and liberty together. Many people think of law, the law, as bondage, but here James sees the law of God as freedom, Because by law, James isn't referring to simply a set of rules. And he isn't just referring to the Ten Commandments or the rest of the law as given in the Old Testament. He is instead referring to the totality of God's revealed Word. And the totality of God's revealed Word is summed up in one person and in one thing, Jesus Christ and the wonderful work of redemption that He came to do. Jesus came and He set us free from the impossible task of carrying the weight of God's law on our shoulders. We just we couldn't do it. So, as our representative, He did it. And Jesus came and, and He set us free from the impossible weights of bearing the burden of, uh, of God's penalty on our backs, which is the full wrath of God. And as our representative, He bore it. And so, all who believe in Jesus are set free from the power and the penalty of sin. What's more, His blood purchased the new covenant, which includes not just a forgiveness of sins uh, right now and a home in heaven later, but it also includes a new nature in Christ equipped with the implanted word. What did Jeremiah say about the new covenant? I will write my word on their hearts. And James is telling us that that Word is fully able to, as we keep on receiving it, bear fruit in our lives. And In fact, Jesus says in John 14 that if His Word abides in you uh, like, like a branch connected to a life-giving vine bears fruit, so you will bear much fruit. And so, the implanted Word, as we abide in Christ, gives us the power to do what we could never do on our own, which is wage war against those old remaining sinful desires in us, and not just wage war, but even win. This is the law of liberty, which at its core contains the gospel. And James says the pathway to spiritual freedom isn't just a one-time reception of the gospel, but a continuous fixing of your eyes on the gospel and all of its implications and fixing your eyes on the prime subject of the gospel which is the person of Christ who after purchasing your freedom conquered the grave and sits at God's right hand interceding for you during all of your trials and all of your temptations this is why this is what the author of Hebrews was getting at when he said let us lay aside every weight and sin which clings so closely, and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us, looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith. Now, notice James says at the end of verse 25 that the person who looks into the law of liberty and perseveres And does the word, he will be blessed in his doing. There is a a blessing that comes with doing the word. There's an experience of freedom and happiness and satisfaction and the enjoyment of God's presence and favor that comes with doing the word. So, the end of the the path of temptation is death. That's all you'll find there. But the end of God's path is life and great blessing. So, in closing, my question for you is a simple one. What are you going to do After what you just heard. After we sing the final song. After I give the closing benediction. What are you going to be doing in five minutes after that? Five hours after that? Uh, Tomorrow morning when you go back to a job that you hate. Or when you go to school. And when you have to navigate the challenges of parenting and other relationships. What are you going to do in those moments when no one is looking Will this week you be only a hearer of the Word? Maybe the Lord is calling you in His Word to do a hard thing. Maybe there's someone that you need to ask for forgiveness for. Maybe there's a move of reconciliation that you need to make. Maybe it's honoring God with your money. Maybe it's using your speech not to tear down, but to build up. Maybe it's a call to sexual purity. I don't know what it is for you. Maybe Maybe it's evangelism. The Word of God calls you to to go and preach the gospel to all nations, and you're not doing it. I don't know what it is for you. But what I do know is that the path forward is more than just hearing the Word, more than just receiving it, as important as those things are, but it is also taking that step of faith in doing what you have heard. It's a step of faith to obey God. And yet, When we have faith in God, our faith and trust is well placed. As you look into the perfect law of liberty, and as you persevere in the path of godliness, and as you not just hear the Word, but you do it, take encouragement in the promise that you will be blessed in the doing. Do you believe that? Do you trust God? Do you trust Him that He will bless you when you do the hard thing and obey His Word? if you do trust Him, then what's your next move? Let's pray.